I'm Beth Bennett, and this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, November 30th, 2021. Coming up, Professor Fred Provenza, author of the book Nourishment, What Animals Can Teach Us, returns to discuss his current venture into the utility of grazing animals in regenerating soil and reducing our carbon footprint. Yes, cows may actually reduce the rate of climate change, but first, we begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. When I was younger, I prided myself on getting by on six hours sleep a night and told myself and others I'd sleep more when I was dead. But humans and all other animals require a lot of sleep. Why this need would evolve, despite being in long periods of unconsciousness, making us vulnerable to predation, has been debated by evolutionary biologists for years. All organisms with a nervous system, including invertebrates such as flies, worms, and even jellyfish, have to sleep. What is different between species is the amount of sleep required. Adult humans sleep approximately 7 to 8 hours per day, whereas owl monkeys sleep for 17, and free-roaming wild elephants may sleep only 2 hours. One function of sleep was discovered in 2013 by Danish neuroscientist Macon Nettergaard. Essentially, this system cleans up the junk that accumulates in the brain while we're awake. She called it the glymphatic system. New research from a team of scientists in Israel identified a new function for sleep. During the day, DNA damage in neurons accumulates, and this increases what the researchers called sleep pressure. A protein called PARP1 senses the DNA damage and signals when it's time to sleep. While we sleep, DNA repair occurs, which reduces sleep pressure. When we're awake, sleep pressure, aka tiredness, builds up in the body. This pressure increases the longer we're awake and decreases during sleep, reaching a low after a good night's sleep. But what causes the sleep pressure to increase to the point where we feel we must sleep? And what happens at night to reduce that pressure so that we're ready to start a new day? Well, listen up. When you're awake, DNA damage accumulates in your nerve cells, called neurons. This damage can be caused by a lot of things, including UV light, neuronal activity, radiation, oxidative stress, and misfunctioning cellular enzymes. Although repair systems can correct some of this damage, it builds up during our waking hours and can reach dangerous levels in the brain that must be reduced. The research team used UV radiation drugs and a type of light therapy to cause DNA damage in zebrafish. Their results showed that as DNA damage was increased, the need for sleep also increased. When the DNA damage reached a critical threshold, the urge to sleep was triggered and the fish went to sleep. During sleep, the DNA was repaired. Specifically, while the fish slept, the levels of DNA repair proteins increased in neurons. Having determined that accumulated DNA damage is the force that drives the sleep process, the researchers then wanted to see whether they could determine the minimum time that zebrafish need to sleep in order to reduce sleep pressure and DNA damage. Similar to humans, zebrafish are sensitive to light interruption, and so the dark period was gradually decreased during the night. The researchers found that six hours of sleep per night was sufficient to reduce DNA damage in the zebrafish. And astoundingly, after less than six hours of sleep, DNA damage was not adequately reduced, and the zebrafish continued to sleep even during daylight. 
The researchers focused on a protein called PARP1, which is part of the DNA damage repair system. PARP1 marks DNA damage sites in cells and recruits relevant systems to clear out DNA damage. Increasing PARP1 promoted sleep and increased sleep-dependent repair. Conversely, inhibition of PARP1 blocked the signal for DNA damage repair. As a result, the fish weren't fully aware that they were tired, they didn't go to sleep, and no DNA damage repair occurred. To strengthen the findings in zebrafish, the investigators moved on to test the role of PARP1 in regulating sleep in mice. These results showed that the inhibition of PARP1 activity in mice reduced the duration and quality of sleep. Although not yet tested in humans, this mechanism may explain the link between sleep disturbances, aging, and neurodegenerative disorders such as Parkinson's and Alzheimer's disease. And it should convince all of us of the need to get a good night's sleep to keep our brains healthy. This research was published last week in the journal Molecular Cell. Several years ago, Dr. Fred Provenza, a wildlife biologist, was a guest on the show. We spoke about his book, Nourishment, What Animals Can Teach Us About Rediscovering Our Nutritional Wisdom. He's gone on to investigate the role of cattle and other livestock in a healthy diet, as well as their potentially beneficial effects in ecosystems. Welcome to the show, Fred. Um, we spoke several years ago now, hard to believe it's been that long, um, about a huge amount of work that you did in terms of understanding how grazing animals make decisions about what forage to eat. But even though that's fascinating work, we're not going to talk too much about that, although we might revisit it in light of what we talk about today, which is that you've expanded the focus of your interest in the past few years to include, if we can say, the human animal. So maybe we can start by you talking about an overview of what you're interested in now, and then we can tie that back into animal nutrition. Yes, Beth, wonderful to be with you again. I so enjoyed our first conversation. And uh, I think as a way maybe to launch into this and to link in with, um, with so much uh, current interest and work that's going on, I would simply say that, uh, start by saying that plants turn dirt into soil and diverse mixtures of plants turn soil into homes, grocery stores and pharmacies. For creatures below ground, there's huge interest nowadays in soil and soil health and what soil can do for sequestering carbon. And then where our work has gone is what plant diversity can do for not only the health of all these herbivores, omnivores, and carnivores below ground, but the same thing for herbivores, omnivores, and carnivores above ground, and for we human beings. So uh, the work has really uh, very much nowadays moved into this realm of the linkages of plant diversity. And I, I emphasize the diversity because it is what creates the homes, the grocery stores, and pharmacies for creatures below and above ground. And so then 
thinking about, well, how does that diversity engender health of those creatures? And then ultimately our health and the, uh, the health of the planet, so to speak. So that's, uh, that's a little bit of a general <laughs> overview of what, what we're thinking about and working on and trying. I'm a cheerleader nowadays, I'll say as much as anything. I retired 12 years ago from Utah State University and uh, worked on the book as we talked about last time. And um, nowadays I, I feel very, very fortunate to be a cheerleader, helping young people write papers, review papers, uh, research papers, helping them to get grant funding along these lines that I've just been talking about. Yeah, that's great, Fred. It seems like not only are you interested in, as you said, plant diversity and its effects on various ecosystems, but just in diversity of the people that you interact with and you're fostering that kind of healthy soil, if you will, in the academic environment. You know, I think back, Beth, to when, and it's amazing, you, you can appreciate this too, how quickly a career goes, right? You're just starting out, you're young, you're full of energy, and before you know it, you're, you're loading all <laughs> your stuff into the dumpster and, and moving on, huh? And so, but I had many, many mentors early on in my, in my career. Well, many, many, I, I can think of a handful who were just... They, they were so helpful in getting a start and in, in helping to guide me. And it's a way to kind of pay back in a sense and, and, uh, and experience the joy that I'm sure they, they experienced helping me early on in my career. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's really important that as you mentor them, you're giving them some insight and infusing them with this idea that you're coming to now of the importance of sustainability and as you said, soil regeneration and its importance on the health of people, animals, and our whole environment. Yes, absolutely the case. And, you know, you see some of the, these, uh, what we'd call young people now, young, so bright, so, so energetic, and how, how much, at least in my experience, from whatever subdiscipline they're coming from, whether it's human nutrition, like Stefan von Leet, for instance, or soil uh, health, like Andrea Clemenson, uh, and others that I could mention, but, but they're thinking so holistically. So they have their focus and their expertise, but they're thinking holistically about the whole system. And uh, it's wonderful to see that. So you have a really great background in terms of the whole system because you looked at animals and plants and their interactions simultaneously. So I think it'll be interesting to some of our listeners to hear your thoughts on cows because while soil regeneration, I think is pretty well accepted in the environmental community, cows are not so much. And so yeah, tell us what you think about cows and their role in the human ecosystem. Absolutely the case. And of course, we, I'm going to preface this by saying we, we all have, have biases that come from our experiences, right? We start, as we talked the first time in the womb and early life. And, and my experiences were shaped very much by, by the four years I spent at Colorado State University in wildlife biology, but at the same time, over a seven-year period, working on a ranch in Colorado. And those two worlds really um, merged for me. And they still, for many people, have not 
merged. Um, I think folks in wildlife think of cows as destroyers of environments and and uh, so forth. But and and certainly cows can get a very bad and do get a very bad rap nowadays, both in terms of meat not being good for human health, and then um, certainly cows not being good for, for climate. Uh, the methane that they belch as a part of, of their digestive processes. Uh, but I, I would say that as we did over the years, grazing isn't grazing, isn't grazing. Cows aren't cows, aren't cows. Uh, meat isn't meat, isn't meat. So what do I mean by that? It's, it's, it's the way that those, that livestock are managed. Um, let's go back to the plant diversity part of things. When, and this is some research that uh, Stefan von Vliet is taking a lead role on. Scott Kronberg and I are, are pitching in with him just to, to give credit for this. But um, we're really looking at the role of plant diversity in terms of the diets of animals and, uh, and what that does, not only in terms of methane production, but also what that does in terms of the quality of meat. And, uh, you know, when animals are finished in feedlots on high grain diets, the meat is different in terms of its phytochemical and biochemical richness compared with the animals that are finished in, uh, on really diverse landscapes. What, what's the importance of that? Well, there's pretty good reason to believe that um, that is going to influence inflammatory responses in our body. So anytime we eat a meal, there's an inflammatory response that occurs the degree to which that occurs depends upon the, the quality of the diet that, that we're eating. And uh, from some research that was done in Australia several years ago, comparing kangaroos actually with, with cattle that had been uh, finished in feedlots, and obviously diet and animal are confounded here, but their key finding was that if you ate meat from kangaroos, there was hardly any inflammatory response in the body. And that was attributed to the diverse plant species that were in their diet. So we're doing work now where, we're, where it's the, those animal and diet aren't confounded. We're doing work with, with cattle, with sheep, with bison. We've just completed a study with bison. And we're working with people around the world on, on these kind of studies to, to really look at um, how does the, going back to my first comment, how does the diversity of plant species in the diet affect not only the health of the soil, but also the health of the animals themselves, and then the, the quality of the milk and meat that we have for human consumption. So it's very much then about, going back to your question about cow, it, it matters so much the way that animals are managed in terms of their influences on the ecosystem, including changing climates, and uh, ultimately their lives, in a sense, as, as food for, for our, for we human beings. So that is so fascinating, Fred. I want to come back to the idea of inflammation because I'm I'm really intrigued by inflammation. I think it's a really important factor in human health. But um, first, I want to say for our listeners that this is not really a surprising finding because people started looking at egg quality many years ago 
in terms of their diet and found that chickens that were fed a healthy diet that more approximated their natural diet rather than being force fed on a variety of unnatural sources that the naturally fed chickens produced eggs that were lower in triglycerides and cholesterol and had a, a healthier range of desirable nutrients and even a better amino acid profile, which is what we all like in eggs. Um, so let's talk about the inflammation. How How was that measured in some of those studies? I'm really intrigued by this. Well, there are various kinds of inflammatory markers that, that people will use. Um, to study that in the in the studies in Australia is, is if I'm recalling correctly, there were four markers that that they were using, and they were simply looking at then um, how how the degree to which the, these different markers increased following a meal of kangaroo or uh, cattle, and then how long those those inflammatory markers stay stayed up high and. It was just, it was pretty remarkable to me that it's when I was first launching into away from, uh, <clears throat> I guess, not moving away from, but but trying to build on the knowledge that, that, that I gained over 40 years studying interactions between plants and herbivores and moving into the human literature. And when I came across that paper, it was amazing to me to, to look at the, their graphs and to realize that. Uh, what a huge difference that that can make, uh, depending upon where the meat's coming from. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I'm, one thing I'm curious about, and um, I don't know if it's possible to answer this question, but based on what you'd studied with grazing animals, those animals made choices as to what they would eat, depending on what their nutritional needs were, as well as their past experience and their mother's experiences as well, like you mentioned, in utero experiences. Uh, so I'm curious if people that are fed, you know, or choose to eat different kinds of meat that has different inflammatory marker profiles, if we would select the meat that is better for us. You know, Beth, if I were if I were still in research, I can tell you that's a question that I would be that I would be very very interested in in, in asking, and I can think of a variety of ways that that would be really intriguing to to ask that ask that particular question would we would we discriminate and um you know what we found was so important and um i see some some studies like this but i think that there's really could be a lot more work done in along these lines from human nutrition standpoint is as we went along, we realized that the background diet that the, that, the, that the animals are on is influencing so much what they do when you offer them a choice. And so that's where I think your question makes me think, you know, the background diet that a person is, a, that a human would be on would be very interesting then to, to set that up. Are they on a, a highly processed, ultra-processed diet or on the, are they on a very wholesome diet? What are the needs that their body might be experiencing? And then with that as way of background, uh, ask the question, would, would they discriminate between um, meat that's coming from animals that have been reared on, on very diverse plant diet versus meat that's coming from animals that have been through a feedlot, for instance? Yeah, absolutely. Because so much of the decisions we make in terms of um, 
for lack of a better term, what I'll call body budget, you know, what all the needs, the diverse needs that our bodies have, um, our experiences are really important, but also our internal assessments. But like you wrote about in your book, so much of the way our brains monitor and assess what we need is based on the experience we've had. So if we grew up with, you know, eating the standard American diet, the SAD diet, if we use an acronym, um, then we might be screwed, right? Because what we're choosing is really what's bad for us because that's what we've had. Absolutely the case. I, I think there's no way to overstate that point. And, uh, you know, I think about how how these experiences do influence what we come to view as, as desirable food. And uh, your point is just dead on with regard to that. I often think of that too, in terms of, of some of the, uh, you know, we wrote a paper a few years ago, really making the point that grass-fed isn't grass-fed, isn't grass-fed either, actually, because the mix of different plant species is going to influence then the phytochemical and biochemical characteristics of meat and dairy and eggs and, and so forth. And so, and then it gets even more complex because each individual animal is going to select a different, a different diet. So it really, it gets unique, but winding back to your point, then the, uh, you know, what we've been reared with, and, and I guess that would be one of the advantages one could argue, quote, advantages of, of, feedlot kind of rations, they're very uniform. So when you go to the store, you're pretty certain of what you're going to get. With the, the grass fed, um, it's going to really be a function of the environment where the animal is finished. And I think that's where one can get into this whole notion of terroir. And uh, when I was in, my wife and I were in France with our, our friend Michel Midet several years ago, we were visiting all these different farms, little farms around the, the landscapes that were uh, either producing meat or producing milk and cheese. And there was such an appreciation that each place is going to produce a different kind of, of creature, so to speak, in terms of the, the health of the creature and the quality of the product. And they were all good. So let's not, not make <laughs> that mistake. It was all good, but, but it, was, it was just getting the, the, the palate in sync with the landscape in that sense of, of terroir. So true. And the Europeans have been aware of that for a long, long time. And, you know, you see that in cheese and wines that they recognize the value of um, a very granular kind of ecosystem. But if we, if we kind of step back and look at the, the whole biosphere in general, I want to follow up one thing you said earlier about how methane released by cows can vary depending on their diet. Can you talk a little bit more about that? It's so true. And I think that's where, Beth, too, to just preface the, the comment here. You know, there, we, we often get into this one size fits all. Um, and I see that, that nowadays being pitched in terms of, of plant-based diets, that we should really all be on plant-based diets. And I'll, I'll preface my preface by saying, you know, I think each person has to figure for themselves what, what diet they want. So not trying to advocate here, but what I would say is that when you look globally around the world and I interact and work with people in, in you know, across Africa, Australia, North America, South America, 
you know, the, the local environments really shape what's possible for people. And, uh, you know, in many of the, the situations where I'm working with people, I'm thinking of Africa now, uh, there's pastoral lifestyles that have been developed that, that are very much a part of the cultures and they very much involve livestock and nutrition and health of those animals. And depending upon the diets that those animals are ingesting, and this gets the terroir kind of ideas, well, the quality of those diets, the chemical characteristics of those diets, for instance, to go dive in just a, a minute, plants that contain tannins um, can, can help to reduce methane emissions in ruminants. I, I often chuckle to hear the various ways that people are thinking about trying to reduce methane emissions in, in, uh, in livestock. Uh, and, and many of them get to be a little bit high-tech high and techy or, or seaweedy kind of approaches and not to say they're bad, but I don't hear much talked about in terms of the, the nutritional quality of the diet and the fact that the chemical characteristics of the plants that are in the diet can really have an influence on how much methane uh, is emitted by animals. So all that again gets down to, um, you know, we like to categorize and generalize, but the world just simply is not that, right? It's uniqueness. Everything is unique in time and space and moving, evolving. And that's, that's the beauty and the wonder. And that's what we can build on, but it, it has to be done at local levels, whether it's human health or environmental health seems like to me. And the one size fits all actually, I think can come across um, for me, even here in the US, but I know for friends in some of the other countries, it's quite arrogant huh? that uh, you think you can dictate. Um, what what everyone across the globe should should and should not be eating and so forth. Absolutely, and circling back to what we said, it's it's kind of arrogant in terms of thinking that we know enough to prescribe certain types of nutrition when we're barely scratching the surface. I just want to underscore that last point you made. I think that I think that's so incredibly important. So I want to add that. Well, Fred, I want to thank you for talking. This has been so much fun. And I'm sure people will be fascinated in this and hopefully we'll follow up on it. Yeah, same for me, Beth. As always, wonderful to, to have a chance to visit with you. That was Fred Provenza, author, nutritional biologist, and innovative thinker. His current interest is in the role of livestock in healthy human nutrition and a healthy planet. I'll put a link in the show notes to his book. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. I produce this week's show. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music by Ludwig von Beethoven. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and links in the show notes. You can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett. 